The collapse of some markets in the wake of coronavirus is upending the livestock industry and creating new kinds of uncertainty. Welcome to Around Farm Progress from the nation's leading agricultural information provider. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director at Farm Progress. Milk dumping, cheaper steaks, and even a bacon glut are all symptoms of a food market out of whack thanks to COVID-19. We wanted to dig into that in more detail, so we turned to three Farm Progress team members to do a deeper dive into the market forces at work. It's a challenging time. The dairy industry is getting a lot of attention as farmers and processors deal with a surplus of milk that's creating chaos in the supply channel. We talked to our Farm Progress editor in the dairy state to get more information. They're dumping milk in Wisconsin and California and out in the Northeast. But this is no normal protest like in the Depression era days or something else going on. And we wanted to get to the bottom of it. So we're talking with Fran O'Leary, editor of Wisconsin Agriculturist. Fran, what is going on with the milk dumping that we're hearing about? Well, it is happening, unfortunately, um, a lot uh, across the United States due to coronavirus. Uh, The coronavirus has caused the markets for milk to completely turn upside down. In Wisconsin, 90% of the milk is made into cheese. And of that, 70% of the milk in Wisconsin went into cheese for food service, including restaurants and schools. And with those closed now, uh, there isn't, there's a diminished market for that cheese and a and it's causing a surplus of milk to back up in those plants. They're running, literally running out of places to put the product and the milk. So they're asking farmers to dump their milk. Are they being compensated for that? I know in California, they're not being compensated. They're just being told to dump it. Uh, what are you hearing in Wisconsin? Well, it started about a week ago. And so far, Dairy Farmers of America is compensating their producers in a way, though they've asked a couple large dairy farms with manure lagoons to dump the milk into, so it's not just running into waterways and getting into lakes and rivers. Um, they've asked them to dump milk for five days, and they said they will compensate them at this time by asking each of their dairy farm customers to um, take a hit on their milk check. So all of their patrons will share in the loss equally. So it's not good news for anybody who ships their milk to those plants, but yeah. at least it's not those specific farmers paying for the total loss. Right. A little bit of cooperative sharing, which of course uh, you, does work when everybody's playing along, which is interesting. Yeah, I think it's hard for people to understand that we're in in commercial dairy production, a lot of the the product goes into the food service and the institutional market. And the challenge is that it's pretty hard for a cheese plant to switch over from doing 40 pound blocks and 20 pound bags of shredded mozzarella over to uh, what I would call single serve, you know, the two cup bags or the small blocks, the eight and 10 ounce blocks I see in the grocery store. That's just not easy. And we're already up to demand on those, right? Right. The If you, if you ship your milk to a cheese plant that makes cheese that goes to grocery stores or the retail level, that's 
great because right now demand is up for cheese at grocery stores. But as you pointed out, the plants that process cheese into 40 pound blocks for uh, restaurants and and food service for schools can't just retool in a matter of weeks and and switch over. So they are are they are backed up with product. And uh, one of the solutions that National Milk Producers Federation came out with this week is for um, the USDA to take some of the money, the $2.2 trillion from the CARES Act, and use that to buy up a lot of surplus cheese and milk and butter and distribute that to low-income families and some of these um, millions of people who just lost their jobs and are unemployed and that will help not only the families have food on their tables, but it will also help dairy farmers have some stabilized market for their milk. And it will help the milk plants continue to employ the people who work there. There are thousands of people who work at these cheese plants making cheese, and they need jobs too. Didn't uh, NMPF, National Milk Producers Federation, also propose, and this is all we're talking about, this is all proposed to USDA, I want to be clear, right. but they also proposed a program where if farmers, dairy farmers could trim back their production by what, 10%? Yes. They're they might be compensated uh, per hundredweight, like three bucks, what, three bucks a hundredweight. Tell me more about that program. And that's also in this proposal for buying cheese as well as supporting the market. Right. National Milk Producers Federation recommends that the USDA ask farmers to cut back milk production by 10% from what their cows were milking in March of this year through from April through the end of September. And for each month that they reduce milk production by 10% or more, they will be compensated with $3 per hundredweight for each Hundred pounds of milk they sell, and that can add up. Right. In addition, this, yeah, but this doesn't mean getting rid of cows, right? This means changing the feed ration. Right. Um, Mark Stevenson, who is a prof dairy science professor at UW Wisconsin um, Madison, he is recommending that farmers not cull cows because it's difficult at this time to send your cows to market. They're um, having problems with, with that pipeline as well because of coronavirus. So he's suggesting that farmers crank down the octane of the feed they're feeding their cows, feed them less protein so that they will milk less and um, save some money as well through these next few months, however long it lasts, that um, we have to get through this. Right, and obviously it's just through September. And as, uh, if you look at the futures price for milk, it's terrible right now, but it looks like in the in the month of September it starts to return to a little better level. So maybe this just kind of gets us over the hump. Is that what you're thinking? Right. The, the 
worst month for milk futures price is May. It's down to 11 something this morning. And uh, April and June are in the $13 range. And August is $14 to $15. And again, like you said, September, it gets back up to $16. And that can change on a dime with I mean, it won't be the same a month from now. It, nobody knows how long this is going to last. So, yeah, they're yeah, they're looking at a lot of different things. That is difficult. What? Uh, it, it's actually hard to find bright spots in the dairy industry. I mean, when we talk about cheese, it's 10 pounds of milk to a pound of cheese. So every pound of cheese you take off the market or every 10 pounds of cheese you take off the market, it's a hundred weight of milk you've got to put somewhere and milk doesn't keep. Are there any bright spots in this at all? Or is this really a superb, horrible hunker down situation for the entire dairy industry? Well, it could be, it could be a very, um, desperate time, but I think the actions that many people are taking in the industry to find solutions to this crisis are hopefully going to avert a collapse of the industry. It doesn't take very much surplus of milk to generate low milk prices. Um, Bob Kropp likes to give the example that $3 3% surplus of milk will generate $10 milk prices and a 1% surplus of milk will generate $20 milk prices. So if you're talking 10% too much milk, that's a horrific amount of milk. But um, if they take these measures to help compensate farmers and reduce the surplus, I think we can get through this without having any catastrophes. Right. And, and we'll see where that goes. And I know uh, Secretary Purdue, Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Purdue, is looking at a lot of different programs. He's also investigating things on the beef side. And we're going to be talking to Bert Rutherford at Beef Magazine shortly. But from the standpoint of the dairy industry, it, you've been taking a hit for the last two or three years. Um, in Wisconsin alone, we've seen a significant reduction in the number of dairy farmers. Um, is and you mentioned the potential collapse. I don't want to create a too dark a picture here, but this can't go on too long or the shift in dairy production could be significant. Correct. Um, it's actually been five years that the milk prices have been sour um, in Wisconsin as well as the rest of the, the nation. And this was actually shaping up to be a recovery year for dairy farmers. Milk prices were up. Um, they were expected to average about Class three price about $17 for the year, and farmers were seeking some relief. And then the coronavirus came along in March, and here we are. But um, we were losing two dairy farms per day um, in 2019 in Wisconsin, and two dairy farms per day on average in 2018 as well. So Wisconsin has lost. 1,500 dairy farms just in the past two years, and that doesn't count any that are selling out in 2020. Well, and, and I don't think selling out – the challenge is selling out's a real problem. We have no place for the cows. Right. Um, and the land still has value, obviously. But the challenge that is, what are you going to do with all those cows? And I think that's an issue that the whole industry is going to be looking at uh, as it, it settles through. And it will be hard for us to know today – 
at this point, what this all means for the dairy industry. Um, obviously, the fluid milk market, uh, there are still empty dairy cases in grocery stores. So the fluid milk market is working to catch up uh, with the demand. Um, do you see some milk in Wisconsin shifting to the fluid side? You don't have that many processors on the fluid milk. I just wondered about that. Right. Only 10% of, well, all but 10% of our milk goes to cheese, but right. we do have a, a couple bottling plants in Wisconsin and they are being sent more loads of milk since this all happened. This whole industry is going to be looking at its entire supply chain. It'll be very interesting to see how it shapes up. It's been great to talk to you today, Fran. We've been talking to Fran O'Leary. She's the editor of Wisconsin Agriculturist. Thank you for your uh, snapshot of the dairy industry as it is right now. We'll probably catch up with you in the next few weeks to see where that, how this unfolds. Again, great to talk to you, and you have a great day. Thank you. You too. We leave the dairy industry and turn our attention to a different kind of cattle, beef cattle. The beef industry has dealt with its share of market upsets, with coronavirus being the latest. For a deep dive into the beef market, we talk to another team member who offers not only a look at what's happening now, but some historical perspective on these kinds of market disruptions. So what's going on in the beef market? I can't think of a better place to go than to turn to Burt Rutherford, editor of Beef Magazine out in Colorado, to talk a little bit about this market in the time of COVID-19, but hopefully a little more going on. Bert, from your standpoint, what what are the things that beef producers are concerned about right now? What's kind of happening in the marketplace? Well, Willie, I, th- I think the thing that beef producers are most concerned about now is uh, just the extreme volatility that the market is going through, particularly the futures market. And uh, the futures are important because that sends a signal uh, to cattle feeders on uh, and packers uh, on pricing uh, fed cattle, you know, cattle coming out of a feedlot uh, going to the packers. And that's because many of those cattle are hedged. And so that relationship between price that you see for live cattle at the feedlot that the packers would pay and the futures market, those two are, are, are fairly well intertwined. And when we have the kind of volatility that we've seen in the futures market, that throws a great deal of, of uncertainty into uh, uh, into the live cattle and, and feeder cattle markets. And so I think that's really the greatest concern is, uh, is just the uncertainty. But, you know, un- that's really the kind of the word of the hour, day, week, and past month or two. Uh, this is a situation that we really have never experienced before uh, in, in the beef business and the cattle business. We've certainly had these black swan events. You know, we had one just not very uh, long ago, relatively speaking, when uh, the Tyson beef plant in Holcomb, Kansas, had a uh, fire in part of the plant, and, and they shut the plant down. That's a very large, very significant plant in terms of, of beef production. And uh, the effects that it had in the marketplace, uh, very similar to what we're seeing now with COVID-19. But this really is a much, much different uh, environment, a much, much different experience. Uh, you know, something that not only the beef business, but uh, the entire United States economy and world economy really is has uh, uh, dealing with. And we're just learning day by day how to do that. Right. And I think the, the thing that creates the question in everybody's mind is how long is it going to last and how deep is it going to get? I mean, the other side of it is there's that discussion over the boxed beef price versus the live cattle price. And I guess USDA has agreed to investigate that with the packers, the, you know, the people who monitor the packers. I mean, what's happening there? 
Yeah, you know, there uh, uh, was an investigation ongoing uh, relative to market dynamics uh, uh, after the the Tyson uh, Holcomb Kansas market reaction. Uh, And so USDA um, has now agreed to roll this uh, investigation into into that ongoing investigation. You know, a lot of angst, um, which is completely understandable uh, because of the volatility and 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 what we're seeing uh, occur in uh, in in feeder cattle prices and and in live cattle prices, uh, cattle coming out of the feedlot. So it's encouraging that uh, that USDA through its Packers and Stockyards Administration, is is uh, going to take a look into that. I think that's necessary, and I think it I think it needs to be done. My first experience with uh, market reactions to what we now call black swan events, we didn't call it back then those things, but <clears throat> that was back, I think, 1986 uh, with the dairy herd buyout and the effect that uh, that it had on, on prices then. And, and in all of the events since then, and I've thought to myself, I need to go back and count because I want to say it's like six or seven of these I've been through. In all of them, uh, I think you could see a very similar market reaction. So uh, I'm not surprised at how the market has reacted. Um, I am a little uh, maybe discouraged is the best word at the um, exceptional volatility that we've seen this time. Uh, I think that surprises people, too, is the, is the not understanding what the true impact is of loss of food service business. Yeah. Law, the yeah. restaurant businesses. I mean, um, you know, I've, I've, I've talked with Fran O'Leary about this on the dairy side and it's it's devastating. They're dumping milk. And, and I'm, you know, getting some feedback. I think I'm going to be talking after I talk to you. I'm going to talk to Ann Hess at National Hog Farmer about what's going on on the pork side. It, it's amazing, I think, we realize today how successful as an industry the livestock industry has been in serving a burgeoning market where the consumer wants to eat out. And now the consumer can't eat out. And I'm sorry, carryout only goes so far to keep a restaurant going. And so now we've got a couple of problems. One, we've reduced, we've lost that food service demand. And two, I'm not sure these people know how to cook. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so they're fighting that too. They go to the store. What do I buy? You know, do I, what am I going to do with that brisket? Or what am I going to do with that, you know, that shoulder cut I've never seen before? Because that's going to start showing up in stores, right? It's not going to the restaurant. So there's some opportunity for the beef industry to teach the consumer how to cook. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, the Packers, uh, to their credit, uh, uh, have made and are continuing to make a pretty hard left turn to retool to produce retail type cuts now, uh, you know, as opposed to, to food service cuts. Uh, but uh, we're seeing kind of an interesting uh, dichotomy there. Uh, ground beef uh, is uh, really, really popular, and that's because hamburger is is so versatile. And uh, you may not know how to cook a pot roast, but you can figure out something to do with hamburger. Uh, we're seeing actually a flip-flop in, in terms of carcass value. Uh, the middle meats, which are, are steaks, are um, the value there is dropping off really significantly, and uh, the chucks on the front end, the round on, on the hindquarters, uh, value of those cuts is is getting quite high. That's that ground beef demand. I saw um, uh, Kroger, the store we shop at, with a, is a Kroger store. The Kroger was going to feature uh, uh, New York strip steaks at $5.99 a pound. Now, I haven't been to the store to see if that's really true here where we shop. But, uh, you know, as we, as we are going into... The grilling season, you know, there's an opportunity there certainly for consumers to find some really good buys on on uh, steak items 
that they might not normally buy as much of. So we'll see how that consumer demand plays out. Uh, you know, Willie, the other side of all of that that is throwing a great deal of uncertainty into the market is uh, how COVID-19 is going to affect the packing plants in terms of their labor force. You know, the social distancing that, that we're uh, being encouraged to do, uh, you know, in a packing plant, uh, those workers are basically standing shoulder to shoulder. Uh, and so having them be six feet apart will uh, slow down production. You know, just simply the health and safety concerns of those employees, of those people, is a concern. Uh, and so we're, we will see a, a pretty significant reduction in uh, packing plant capacity, how much beef they're really going to be able to produce. That'll be a big issue too on the, uh, the with our just-in-time distribution system. If that tightens up, I mean, we, we may see some interesting things on the grocery side, which can sometimes create a consumer concern. There's probably plenty of meat. It's just going to take a while to get to the market. Right. And, and, um, if we do see a reduction in in the uh, amount of beef that packers are able to keep in that supply chain going to the retail stores, uh, you know, then we'll see that cutout begin to increase, the cutout price, wholesale price, mm-hmm. uh, begin to increase, and and um, and then we'll be back to concerns about an imbalance in the marketplace. So it's it is a terribly trying time at the moment. Particularly if if you are a, a cow calf producer or a stalker operator, and and looking at at trying to market cattle into a uh, into a market that quite frankly is trying to find its footing and is having a really hard time doing that. Can we find other events that are similar? I wondered if the Christmas surprise is close to this event. Um, it was a an event of unknown length of impact. It had a global impact on trade for U.S. producers. Is that is that an area we can look at to kind of get some indication of what might happen? Or is it just let's ride this horse and see what it, where it takes us? I think that might be the the closest thing to what we're experiencing now. That was kind of a slap up the side of the head to the beef business because we really were not familiar uh, outside of researchers and, and uh, people who dedicate their, their lives to understanding this sort of stuff. The industry in general was not very familiar with that and and so we knew it was going on we 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 uh uh but we thought that we were we were okay and then all of a sudden we weren't now the timing of that uh was a little different you know coming right before christmas right uh, and and so uh uh, you know, a slightly different seasonal marketplace than what we've got now. But yes, that is that would be a very interesting comparison. We'd uh, already bought all of our crown roasts before that happened, so we had the beef in the house. So that was as we look at this industry. You mentioned six events over your history covering this business that were you know, uncertainty creators and market disruptors. Um, right now, it's it is righted out a little bit. So I have a question: what What are the marketing guys you talk to saying that a person needs to do on their beef operation? I mean. If you're a cow-calf guy, you can hold the calves a little longer, right? I mean, that's a part of it. But when you're in the feeding business and the feedlots, what are they going to have to do? Well, the feedlots are are um, possibly, and I have to use that word, right? Um, cattle that were hedged. And by and large, uh, you know, the, the futures market in terms of hedging is uh, going to be used for cattle on feed. So cattle that were hedged, you know, they're going to certainly not as, as well, perhaps, as they would have had we not had this uh, – come down upon us, but um, uh, the basis is working very much in favor of a lot of people. And so those hedge cattle, you know, they're going to come out as well as anybody. 
uh, certainly cattle that had no price protection on them in the in the feed yards. Uh, there's a huge concern there. You know, Willie, but what I think this brings up is um, when we get to the other end of this, and we have to keep telling ourselves that there will be an end to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we, we got to keep that in front of us or else I think we become just overwhelmed with hopelessness. So when we get to the end of this, I think it is going to be incumbent upon the beef business to have a, a very strong uh, conversation relative to what mechanism can we put in place to make price protection available to everybody. You know, there are a lot of people who either don't want to or more likely just can't because of the way the futures market is set up, use futures and hedging as a price protection opportunity. So um, we have to have very serious conversations about uh, about that. Uh, I'm not advocating that we do away with or stop using futures uh, because they're a very viable part of, of risk protection for some operations. Uh, we need to look at what we can do to develop a viable, true price protection for everyone. Uh, now, to your question, right, if you're a cow-calf producer and you're, you're spring calving, uh, you know, you've got a ways to ride this out. If uh, we're coming into springtime, depending upon your pasture situation and your grass situation, if you've got stalker cattle, you know, maybe uh, uh, if you have the opportunity, again, wait it out. may not be the most advantageous for you economically, uh, and so you really need to push the pencil on that, uh, whether to just go ahead and, and uh, uh, put them into the pipeline and try to uh, recover and, and uh, get some of that money back on the next turn uh, or to uh, just uh, just keep them on pasture. Uh, I don't have the answer to that. Each <laughs> operation is going to be different and you really, really need to uh, um, to uh, do some pretty fine mathematics to make that uh, make that decision. Yeah, it's going to push people, that's for sure. Oh, man, yeah. And if you aren't in the position to be able to to wait it out, if you've got cattle that you just have to sell, you know, I think the suggestion uh, that I've heard the most is just uh, do what you can to make those cattle as acceptable to to the buyer. Uh, You know, if you're going to take them to your local sale barn, work with your sale barn uh, folks, uh, make those cattle as acceptable as you can to those order buyers sitting on the seats. Um, and um, <clears throat> you sure may not get the price that you want for them, but you might be able to get the best price that, that's out there when you sell them. And that's, uh, that is that um, is heartbreaking for me to say and, and disappointing for people to hear, but that's, that's the best I got. Well, it's fair. I mean, it's the best any of us have right now. The whole food industry probably is going to get a, a review after all this thing passes. And right now, I don't like the phrase light at the end of the tunnel because where I come from, sometimes that lights an oncoming train. But yeah. I'm with you. It will eventually end. And when we get there, we've got a lot of debriefing and understanding we have to do. Well, it's been great talking to you with you, Bert. I've been talking with Bert Rutherford, the editor of Beef Magazine. And it's been great talking to you, sir. Take care. Willie, thanks for having me. We wrap up this episode of Around Farm Progress with a look at the swine industry. A bacon glut and processing plant pressure are visible signs that coronavirus is a market changer. Note that when we talked with our next guest, Ann Hess, editor of National Hog Farmer, Smithfield had yet to decide to close its Sioux Falls, South Dakota plant. It is now closed. The market is in constant flux, and she offers a look at market forces at work and provides perspective for going forward. 
So what's happening in the hog market? It's important to find that out and to get a deeper look at that. So we're turning to Ann Hess, who's the editor of National Hog Farmer today. Hello, Ann. Hope things are going well where you are in South Dakota, I think, right? Um, what What's happening in the hog market? Can you give me a quick uh, bullet point rundown of what, what farmers should be what are seeing and what's going on in the market? Hi, Willie. Yes, um, definitely seeing a lot of developments on the hog side. Um, we're seeing uh, some food service contraction versus the grocery store expansion. Um, we are seeing a strong demand at the grocery store level, but you know, seeing some of that at the restaurant food sector, um, you know, decreasing there. Um, you know, we're seeing high uh, prices um, in primal cuts like the loin, but we're seeing, um, you know, belly prices have dropped. Um, you know, there's, um, if you look at bacon, typical market, a third of bacon uh, goes to restaurants and or retail, I mean, and two-thirds. Uh, goes to food service. So with the market we're in right now, we're losing quite a bit of um, demand for bacon and bellies. So um, definitely a surplus of supply there. Um, you know, short term, we're seeing some issues um, with the processors. Um, Tyson uh, closed their Columbus Junction, Iowa plant earlier this week after a couple dozen cases of COVID-19. Um, you know, according to our estimated um, daily slaughter capacity they do from our annual packer capacity report Steve Meyer puts out you know they run about 10,000 head per day so um, you know yesterday the big news was uh, Smithfield's plant in Sioux Falls Um, they're still running Um, the the South Dakota Department of Health confirmed that they had around 80 cases of uh, COVID-19 positive but they have put in very stringent um, policies and protocols following CDC um, guidance. And, you know, that's also having an effect on home, um, on, you know, packer operations. Um, We're seeing, uh, you know, line speeds are are being slowed down because of social distancing. And, you know, lines and plants aren't easily switched over to some of those other cuts that are needed right now. So, we're anticipating continued slowdown there as far as for um, for plants. Um, but, you know, there are some, some positives we're also seeing, um, you know, such as, such as the export market has still been relatively um, well here through January and February. So there might be some silver linings there. Do you think that, uh, speaking of exports, stay on that for a moment, uh, mm-hmm. I know USMEF is working, United States Meat Export Federation is working very hard on this. Do you see China coming back in any way, or what are they saying about that side of the business? So globally, pork consumption has is projected to be down quite dramatically in 2020, mostly due to the African swine fever um, epidemic in, in China. But um, China, Hong Kong in February was our largest uh, driver of U.S. Um, pork exports, um, they were um, up quite a bit. And then following that, uh, they, well, they were up, they tripled from a year ago to 98,000 metric tons. And export value could quadrupled to $243 million. Um, so for the first two months of 2020, their exports actually increased 260% from a year ago. Um, but, you know, our mainstay markets are 
Japan and Mexico are coming in strong. In February, Japan was up 23% year over year. Mexico was up 16%. Um, so if, if people get a hunger for pork globally, um, you know, it should be a, a great place to send some of this extra supply that we may have here um, due to the restaurant food service industries being impacted by COVID-19 even though their restaurants are also impacted, but there's still, like you say, an opportunity for personal consumption to go up. Because obviously, I mean, we, you know, we talk about COVID-19, it's all over the news, but your industry is still dealing with the concern of African swine fever. How, where are we in that area before we get to some more bright spots in the hog industry? But what, what's the situation on ASF and what are you hearing there? You know, we're still hearing about cases popping up across China, um, you know, there are some bright spots there. Um, some of the more uh, large-scale modern production facilities are really following some of the things we're doing here in the U.S. as far as um, better trucking, more biosecurity, um, you know, multiple showers to get on farm, um, watching the food that's coming in as that can be a contaminant um, for the vi- or a, tran- a possible hotspot for the virus to come in. Um, you know, they're still uh, struggling to get back on on on, on production levels there. But um, you know, the one thing we're seeing from uh, USMEF too is is just their marketing efforts there and how they've changed in Asia, doing more um, promotional things for U.S. pork, um, for e-commerce and delivery and cooking shows and things like that. So. I almost feel like we need to kind of watch on marketing efforts what they're doing over here um, as far as what we'll probably be seeing coming out in the next few months from the U.S. Um, I know the National Pork Board's been doing a strong campaign domestically and have some more plans as we go through um, the spring and into summer seasons. Yeah, we want to get pork on the menu for more homes. It's an interesting situation. I know pork and the food service side, mostly bacon. I don't know too many restaurants doing a good pork chop. I mean, there are some, but in terms of the fast food side, the pork industry is still working on, on that. But when you get to um, home, yes, let's let's buy some pork chops. Let's do some ribs. Let's get some stuff into the farm and from from farm to my grill, basically, is how I'd look at it. And like I told you before the call, um, the glut of bacon is not good for the industry, but probably and probably not good for me either. Let's just put it personally. Bacon, <laughs> bacon is, you know, prime on anybody's menu. So that's that's a, a fair thing. So basically, the one of the call outs from the podcast is if you don't have any bacon in your freezer, go get some. Um, if you're allowed to go to the store, that's a different issue. What what other things you've been on some calls with the industry uh, recently? I mean, it's interesting. Uh, we uh, I talked earlier with Fran O'Leary, and she mentioned that it's actually easier to reach some sources now because they're all in webinars. Um, what what are you hearing from the industry folks you're talking to as they look forward to the forward into the future? Some of the the bright spots maybe we might be seeing. Yeah, you know, I'm listening to a pork board webinar earlier this week. Um, Scott Brown from University of Missouri kind of gave a hog market outlook. And, you know, short short term's tough. He, you know, next two to four weeks, we're going to be looking to see what's happening with the process or capacity. Um, you know, 6 to 12, you know, he's, he's thinking, you know, maybe some restaurants might start to open up. Um, there could be 
um, you know, processors might have, um, you know, with all these new efforts in place by the CDC and guidance, you know, really tighten down um, any possible exposures to COVID-19. And, you know, for the late part of 2020, it's optimistic, uh, like I said, about the global demand accelerating as well as, you know, the domestic demand, um, you know, in conversations I've had with Angie Krieger, who's um, vice president of domestic marketing for the pork board, you know, we talked about people who had no idea how to cook a ham at home or uh, a pork chop or a pork loin that when this is all done, we could possibly have, you know, a whole new um, sector of people eating pork because, you know, they've watched the videos, the YouTube videos the pork boards put out. They've learned how to cook it properly. They're enjoying it with their family. They're finding out, um, you know, you can cook a, a pork butt once and you can eat it two, maybe three times with different, you know, pulled pork sandwiches. Maybe it's a um, taco night. A lot of different options for um, pork at home. Um, so they've really stepped up their um, reach to the consumers. They always were reaching consumers, but just um, making sure that uh, as retailers are, are just trying to pump the product out, um, you know, what the there's a lot of times you know people are just going to the grocery store and they are stocking up. Um, and not making those short runs to the grocery store, but stocking up because they're seeing the signs that things are out. So they're trying to get as much as possible and they're, they're actually spending more money. Um, so, you know, trying to um, get the right information in their hands like as they're taking these products home, um, you know, they're doing a, a promotion around Easter and, and hands, what we can what we can do there as well as, you know, they are looking at bacon. Um, at retail right now, bacon's up 20%. So, um, and they've done some research too with, with partners that's, you know, said bacon and breakfast foods are, are a comfort food people rely on during a recession. So they're, they're working on efforts there. And then, you know, getting into um, early summer here, looking ahead that, you know, restaurants might open up and things might start to get back to normal, but, people might be hesitant to um, go out to a crowded restaurant. And so they're going to do an early promotion on grilling season and getting people comfortable with cooking pork out on the grill and enjoying some time, you know, outside, outdoors, um, surrounded by a meal with pork. So I think those efforts and, and the pork exports, um, the, the, you know, the opportunities there are definitely the, the highlights for the industry right now. Yeah, so the message is we want to deliver our pork at 135, not any warmer. You know, those kinds of tools, right? Nobody knows how to cook pork. I, I get that, and it's part. It's pretty sad. Nothing's better than a just past medium rare pork chop. It's amazing. So more freezer space, opportunity for the export markets. The pork industry has weathered worse, um, and so they will weather this as always, but it's just how long the long tail is, and we're all in that area of uncertainty. We've been talking to Ann Hess, who's the editor of National Hog Farmer. Ann, great to talk to you today. Keep up the good work and uh, keep your readers posted on what's going on in the hog industry. And thanks again. Thank you, Willie. As we've learned, coronavirus is twisting every market in new ways, and we'll keep covering it here on Around Farm Progress. In addition, the Farm Progress team is covering the COVID-19 issue from across the country with local insights into what's happening and constructive ideas on actions producers can take to protect themselves and their businesses. The best way to find our coverage 
is to visit farmprogress.com forward slash coronavirus. Again, farmprogress.com forward slash coronavirus. This site section is constantly being updated. Thanks for listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly podcast where we touch base with our editors from around the country to get the latest information about what's happening on the farm. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional magazines, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer and Feedstuffs, and of course, the Farm Progress Show and Husker Harvest Days. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.